Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs 10, 27 through 32. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The way of the Lord is strength to the upright, but destruction shall be To the workers of iniquity. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the just brings forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Let us hear. Once again, from the Reverend Charles Bridges, as we introduce this afternoon's sermon. But the wicked, they too have their expectation, for none have a stronger hope than those who have no ground for hope. And this delusion too often reaches to the moment of eternity, nay, even to the day of the Lord, to the very throne of God, expecting the door to be opened to them, after it has been shut forever, as if dreaming of heaven and waking in hell. The expectation of the wicked shall perish. Christian, make sure the ground of your hope. Then set out its gladness as becometh an heir of glory. Let not a drooping spirit tell the world the scantiness of your hope. But let it be seen that you can live upon it with joy and gladness until you enter into its perfect and everlasting fruition. I think that's well said. All right, well, so we have been discussing this antithetical set of verses here. The righteous, the wicked, the righteous, the wicked. We have said that there are two humanities in this world. We have said that there are, in those two humanities then, this use to be made, that we want to be careful, take care of our associations. We, We must do business in this world. The Apostle Paul makes that clear. But we must not go beyond the doing of business in this world and make those unholy associations which he will also say corrupt our good morals. We must be very careful in in the way that we associate to this darkened world. It's a a cold and corrupt world. Uh, May I say it this way? One of my former pastors used to say, out there, it's raining fire and brimstone, right? So we must not do those things then in our associations and friendships and, quote, common cause efforts that we make with those of this world that would draw us off in our affection, in our doctrine, in our commitment to follow the Lord and his ways. Then we set forth darkness and light, good and evil. We looked at those briefly. Then we said that there is a way of life and a way of death. Right? The, the, the antithesis is not just in human beings. 
but in the way that they travel, the way that they go from, from, their, from one uh, event of the next to their lives. And there is a way, a way of holiness, as it's called in some places, a way of righteousness, as it's called in other places, a way to the Lord in some other places. Jesus will call himself that way, right? He is that way upon whom we rest on the way. He also said that there is a narrow way, a straight way, if you will, a pinched and, and, and tight way, and then there's a broad way. Then, Pro- then Proverbs will also tell us that there is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Twice Solomon says that to us in the Proverbs. So we talked about the good way, what Jeremiah called the old paths, wherein uprightness, holiness is found, and so on. In the last Conception in those ages of Messiah to come, as the Old Testament prophets looked forward, they said, and a way is there. It's called the way of holiness. Right? So we talked through some of that, not exhaustively, but helpfully, I I pray. And now, uh, last week, we, we took up the promises of long life, longevity, and how they are truly spoken of in Scripture that these really speak to the eternity of things. And it is not a carnal quid pro quo that if we're good little boys and girls, we'll live long on the earth, so far as it shall serve for God's glory and our good. But also notice that the Lord attaches promises of blessing to obedience. And these are good things for, for the people of God to remember. The Lord is not a hard master. Remember, beloved, what he might require of you. And then remember also what he does require of you and the difference there. In Christ Jesus and in the power of his spirit, he will receive your imperfect works and be pleased with them. You will have the smiling countenance of your father as you come to him in Christ, even with your imperfect works, which he puts into your imperfect hands. He will receive them. He might have done something Quite different from that. But notice also that he promises you blessing to encourage you to obedience. And we looked at that last week when when we talked about the fifth commandment in Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. And it was adapted in the the days of the New Testament. No longer is it the land of Canaan, right? Long on the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. But now it's for the entirety of the earth. And yet the promise remains. A promise of blessing for well-doing. Isn't that what we find in those final chapters as Moses wraps up his, his earthly ministry to the children of Israel? And doesn't he say to them, What doth the Lord require of thee, beloved, but to do his will, but to do his commandments, and he will bless you for it? The Lord could have required the same thing and never promised a blessing and would have been just in doing so. But he is a kind father, and so he encourages us in that way with those promises of long life, all other things being equal. So we talked about longevity. And one of the things we noted from Isaiah chapter 57 is that sometimes even among the righteous, their lives are cut short. Well, how does that work then, Pastor Todd? 
What is God doing? Has he broken his word? No. No, actually what God says in Isaiah 57 is that when he takes the righteous away prematurely, it is to keep them from evil that is to come. It is still his mercy, even when he takes them away unexpectedly. It's yet his mercy. You see, beloved, what a merciful God we serve. So we spoke of longevity for, for, for a bit, and especially as it, as it related to children. And I, I left a few things on the table last week that I want to talk to you about this week regarding that longevity. Because the Lord also, as a kind father, threatens us with judgments when we disobey him. Not judgments that would send us to hell as his children. None of his true children go to hell. We know that. But these are his chastisements. Now, sometimes it's going to be difficult for us to tell in this side of glory who are his children and who are not exactly. But notice that if God would promise long life for obedience unto children, and children, we encouraged you with that last week. This week... we want to turn the coin over because the Bible turns it over. The Bible does turn that coin over and show that the Lord often shortens the life of disobedient children. This is what the Lord thinks of disobedience. Now, this isn't just a passage or a a set of of scriptures that we're going to look at only for children. Remember in the fifth commandment that the rebellious can expect these same judgments no matter what that structure of authority is that we, that we rebel against. If it is lawful, if it is a God-ordained authority, beloved, we as the people of God regarding the fifth commandment are indeed uh, put under notice that if we obey those lawful authorities over us, it will be well with us. And if we do not, we can expect the judgments, the chastisements of God. So the first passage that I'd like you to uh, turn to with me is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Now children, we don't uh, read these scriptures to scare you. It's not the purpose. Really the purpose is so that we might all understand what the Lord thinks of unlawful disobedience to authority. We've heard before from this pulpit, we'll not talk about it today except to mention it, that there is a time to resist unlawful authority. That there may be a lawful officer that requires something unlawful that we cannot obey. We all understand that, that our leaders over us don't have, whether in the church state, even in the family, that they don't have absolute sway over our consciences. That God alone is Lord of the conscience. But that's not what we're talking about in these passages that we're about to look at here. We're, we're talking about unlawful disobedience to lawful authority rightly administered. So in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 18. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. 
He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. It's a very solemn passage, isn't it? Notice what the Lord thinks of disobedience. And would we expect anything else given God's promises of blessing to obedience? That God turns that coin over and threatens judgments for disobedience. Should that surprise us at all? Rather, it should not. We should expect something like that. Now, notice that this young man here that is being spoken of is at least of age to have shown himself, we might call it incorrigible, right? Not correctable to any moral judgment. Um, he is a, a drunkard and a glutton. And, and I, I put drunken, drunkenness and gluttony here for all kinds of indulgence. Not just that, but all kinds of indulgence, <laughs> right? Which may turn to more illicit Things like our larger catechism teaches us in the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment. And notice also that the, the, uh, the concern that these parents have for the covenanted nation itself, that they would indeed, after a period of exhausting their own efforts, bring their children or their son to such an end. Notice also that they are not permitted to do that themselves, that this is a lawful civil judgment that must be undertaken by the judgment of the judges in the gates. In other words, the parents' word are not taken for it carte blanche. We would uh, make the necessary implication here that there is a judgment, a trial that takes place upon this, this, young, this, this young man here to see whether or not what his parents are saying to him is true. Of course, they would be two or three witnesses, right, or one or two witnesses, and then others would be called as witnesses as well. So, children, when the Lord does promise uh, long life for obedience, let us also remember that the corollary is true. He threatens the shortening of life for disobedience. Okay? Uh, and... We should take from this in its moral application throughout all time God's great displeasure at the overturning or rebellion against lawful authority. We've said this before from Acts chapter 19. We've all read Acts 19. That's, you know, that, that day when <clears throat> there's a riot in the city of Ephesus. And for the space of three hours... <laughs> These folks continue in their riot. Great is Diana of the Ephesians over and over and over and over again. And finally the civil magistrate comes forth and he says to them, what are you doing? You all need to go home. You need to go home now. And with that he dismissed the assembly. Of course, we know who stood behind him. There was probably a phalanx of armed guards with him to handle the rabble, rob, uh, the rabble mob should they have risen up against him. And so they went home. It was dispersed. And we've said the same thing for ourselves. 
Oh, maybe you, you may feel compelled someday to go out and be a part of some demonstration somewhere against this or that. But when the lawful authority comes and says, this is getting out of hand, you all go home, then go home. And if you don't go home and you end up with a, um, with a pair of um, silver uh, bracelets, don't call it persecution at that point. Right? Okay, so... The next passage that I'd like to read is Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. Sorry, not Deuteronomy, but Exodus. Exodus 21, verse 15, notice, He that smiteth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And then verse 17, And he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. We bring these scriptures up simply to show the seriousness with which God takes the breaking of the bond of lawful authority and how it is indeed something that was in the Old Testament punishable by death. It may not necessarily be so today, but the displeasure of God is on full display in these judgments. We turn to Proverbs chapter 30 for a moment, in verse 10. Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee, and thou be found guilty. There is a generation that curseth their father, and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords, and their jaw teeth as knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. The horse leech hath two daughters, crying, Give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things say not, it is enough. The grave, and the barren womb, and the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. The eye that mocketh at his father, and despiseth to obey his mother. The ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. You know, those are not things we turn to in the middle of the night for comfort, obviously. But they are certainly the statements of Almighty God who takes very, very seriously when, those, when that generation whose eyes are lifted up would curse or strike or mock at their father and their mother. One more passage that I'd like, I'd like to turn to in Matthew chapter 15. There, were, there are several others that we could have turned to, but for the sake of time, we'll just take this one. <clears throat> Verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands, when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, 
honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and he honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, he that honoreth not father or mother, let him die the death. It's not just Old Testament stuff, beloved. Christ spoke this. Now, Christ was indeed in that transitional period between the Old and New Testament. But do you think then that when Christ ascends into heaven that somehow this teaching of Scripture goes by the boards? Well, no, not at all. So what we wanted to demonstrate here is that in this promise of long life, if we want to keep in the vein of the antithesis and show its corollary, we will find that in Scripture as well. Here in Proverbs chapter 10, 27 through 32, we are going to see that wickedness tends to, to life being cut short. Okay, so let's turn back to Proverbs 10. We'll continue our review just for another moment or two. Remember last week what we said. We said that not only uh, is this life that, that the Lord gives to us that we found in Proverbs 10, this longevity and so on. It's not a longevity in drudgery or, or, um, or grief. The life that the Lord has given to us in this world, we saw last week, is an abundant life. It's not a life that is somehow uh, pinched and, uh, and it's, it's got so many things. And we, and we don't see this very often because we have fallen into the trap that the world sets for us or the enemy of our souls, which is you need to desire all these other things. And if you're desiring all these other things and then you get your eyes off of what Christ has laid right at your feet in the abundant life, what happens? Your life will be a drudgery. It will be difficult. You will grieve over what you have in this world. Why? Because you don't see them as a part, of these gifts as a part of the abundant life. You know, the world tells you you should be seeking power and influence, acceptance and appreciation, affection, whatever those things are, plus all of those temporal gifts that Jesus talks about in uh, Matthew chapter 6. You know, all these things the Gentiles seek after. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? All these things the Gentiles seek. But I put it to you, beloved, there's a lot more that the Gentiles seek than simply food and raiment. They seek power and prestige. They seek to be respected and honored. In fact, they demand it. Whatever their opinion is, they throw it in your face and want you not only to tolerate it, but to approve of it and to affirm them in it. And the enemy of your souls would put those things as desiderata, things to be desired, before your own eyes. And if you get your eyes on those and not on what Christ has laid at your feet as a part of the abundant life, beloved, you will grieve. You will grieve. I was looking uh, <clears throat> every week in our catechism class, I try to bring something that was a part of my study that I'm working on memory-wise and a part of studying for sermons. This week it was 
Larger Catechism 83. The communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy in this life, is that they are that they have uh, some things that they receive from Christ in this life, right? What are those things? Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, hope of glory. Beloved, these gifts, this communion in glory, which the members of the invisible church enjoy with Christ in this life, this is what makes up the abundant life. And if we turn away from those things and desire what the world desires, we will be disappointed. We will murmur and we will complain. I like the quotation from Samuel Miller. I won't read the whole thing today. But there was a point at which Miller was asked on, on the 50th anniversary of his ordination whether or not he should throw a party. He's in, you know, in standard humble fashion, Miller said something like this. He would say, you know, I'm sure that such a celebration would be fitting, uh, pleasant to my nature. It would provide perhaps some encouragement to my friends. But then notice what he did say. Instead of firing a noisy salute as over some triumph, I would much rather be silent and humble myself in secret before God that during 50 years of evangelical ministry, I have done so little for the best of masters, accomplished so little for the benefit of my generation, enjoyed so little communion with him whose servant I have professed to be. Miller understood his place. He wasn't seeking those accolades of the world. He sought to sit at the feet of his Lord and to gain his strength and encouragement from that way. So instead then of disappointment uh, with the Lord or with the gifts he has given, pining for some elusive things which the world sets before us as desiderata, let us live that abundant life that the Lord has set before us. That's the review from last week. A little bit longer of a review, but there were some things we left uh, unsaid last week. So, moving on to this week's study, there are a couple of things I, I, I'd like to do. I, I would like to turn the coin over, not only with regard to longevity, but with regard to the wicked itself, or himself. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. I'd like to focus for the rest of our time on that last phrase. The expectation of the wicked shall perish. You'll notice the structure we have an A, B, A, B system here, right? Righteous, righteous, A and C, or A, I don't know. How, how would you like me to lay it out? Positive, negative, positive, negative. Righteous, wicked, righteous, wicked. And it progresses in its ideology. It starts out, right, by saying something about the fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. But then notice, it goes beyond simple longevity to the hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. You see how he progresses the thought from mere longevity to what is beyond even that. And what is the hope of the righteous, beloved? What is the hope of the righteous? 
let's dispel any of those strange ideas that in here in the in the visible church in some places that whatever the best things on earth are that's what heaven's going to be like except glorious let's just turn away from all that you know there's not going to be uh, you know snow skiing or water skiing in heaven it's not going to be there if you if if I'm bursting your bubble here um, I'll apologize later I don't apologize at the moment right it, that's not what we're looking at what is what is glory all about? It's about sitting at the Lord's feet and learning about him and worshiping him and giving him glory for all eternity in that infinite God that he is. We've talked about this before. It'll be, it'll be you know, he will be the desire of our eyes and, and he will fill our eyes and we'll not have time for anything else. Not even a family, right? They neither marry nor are given in marriage. But in that estate, we're like the angels. There's not even marriage in heaven. No, all of our time, the bride that comes down from heaven, adorned for her husband, right? We'll be married to Christ and we'll spend eternity with our husband, studying him, learning about him. And just when we think that, you know, we have been increased in our capacity to, to full and I just can't learn anymore, he's going to say, oh yeah, watch this. And he's going to open something else up about himself. And then he's going to open something else. And then he's going to show us a greater depth of his love toward us and how he has protected and loved his people from forever and will forever. And we'll be studying that all, the, all of our eternal lives. So what is the, the hope of the righteous? It is that we will see him. We will be like him. We will see him as he is. We will commune with him. That's the hope of the righteous, beloved. And if your hope is set in anything else that, you know, it's, it's pie in the sky, you know, something sweet. Well, it is something sweet, but it's more than pie and whatever else you might conceive of. It is indeed nothing short of communion with God himself for all eternity. And we'll have those angels standing by us and looking at us in wonder that fallen creatures are now more glorious than they and their judges. We don't know yet what that's like, do we? We just can't see it. But it is what's coming. This is what the Bible tells us. The Bible also tells us that eye hath not seen, neither hath ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love him. But what is the expectation of the wicked? Oh. He has an expectation. In fact, as Bridges said in our quotation today, some of the strongest expectations of the future are found among those who have the least reason for such expectations. Right? We don't underestimate the, the ability of the human heart to deceive itself into, into formulating heaven into whatever it wants it to be. So, we read about the years of the wicked being cut short in verse 27, but then in 28, the expectation of the wicked shall perish. Can we talk about that expectation then for a few moments before we close? Um, let's look at a few passages. Let's stay in Proverbs for a little bit. 
if you turn over to the next page in Proverbs 11 and verse 7, we'll note this. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. Right? His expectation, it comes to an end. It has no more true being than that which exists in his mind. And so when he dies, it dies. It doesn't outlive him, in other words. It's coextensive with him. This tells you where it came from. It rose up out of his own cracked mind, his own erroneous thinking. In verse 32 of Proverbs chapter 14, it says that the wickedness is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. The same kind of idea there. Now we'll turn over to the book of Job and we'll hear that godly debate that went on between Job and others. Notice in Job, first of all, chapter 8 and verse 13. So are the paths of all that forget God. The hypocrite's hope shall perish. In Job 11 and verse 20, we read, The eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. Or it'll be like their death. Right? Their hope will die along with them. In other words, same thing we heard there in the Proverbs. In Psalm 112, we read this, verse 10, The wicked shall see it and be grieved, that is, when the righteous endure forever. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. And then there's that great passage in Luke 16, the parable that Christ told about the rich man and Lazarus. You'll remember that. Begin our reading in verse 23. And in hell the rich man, that is, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, And cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, betwixt us, or between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You know, who would want to come here, right? This wasn't my expectation. Abraham saith unto them, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Of course, we know how true that is. There is no evidence that demands a verdict. 
in this world. It is simply the movement of God upon the heart, upon testimony from Scripture. So we have those passages there, and we have this expectation, right? But notice that we are told outright that the expectation of the wicked will perish. It perishes with him. It is as ephemeral, as vapor-ish as he is. His life is but a vapor which appears but for a short time and then vanishes away, and all of his hope goes with it, just like that. But there have been folks that are spoken about in Scripture that thought they had, they had it more, they had more than that. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the building of the Tower of Babel. You'll remember that. What did those guys have in mind? What did they have in mind there in building that ziggurat? Back there on the plains of Shinar, uh, Babylonia today, modern Babylonia. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said unto one another, Go to. Whenever you hear go to in your, in your authorized version, what that means is, let's get after this. This is something we need to get going on right now. Let's be forward to get this done. Go to. Let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. What does it mean to make yourselves a name? It means to ensure that you have an everlasting remembrance. What were they doing in the plains of Shinar? They were trying to get for themselves some kind of eternal life. Whether that would be eternal life in the preservation of their name or their lands or their reputation or even their very lives. Because you know, we can build this tower up into heaven itself. We're going to make us a name. What is the expectation of the wicked? A name. A name that continues. Right? People are going to be talking about me for a long time. Mm -hmm. But the Lord came down and confounded their language, didn't he? You know why? Because the Lord says in Isaiah 43, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. There is no other name under heaven and earth whereby you must be saved. There is no other name but mine. At the name of Jesus we read earlier today, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Not at the names of these men that were related to Nimrod of old and his ilk that threw off the yoke of God and left their original habitation and went on to their own place to build themselves a name and a tower. No, beloved, the expectation of the wicked will perish. Solomon tells us that. And we learn that from the Bible over and over again. The next passage I would like you to look at with me, let me see if I can find it here in my notes, is in Luke chapter 12. Here's a different expectation, but similar in its own right. There's something else going on here, though. Notice Luke twelve sixteen, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where, where to 
bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What was the expectation of the wicked in Luke 12? That he was about to enter into a life of ease. That he had many goods laid up for many years to come so he could put his feet up, put on his jammies, and he could just go on for a number of years without labor, without serving God or men. What he did not know was his expectation was going to meet the same end his life would that night. And then all of his goods were given away. There's another passage that speaks to this. It's in Psalm 49. Let's turn to Psalm 49 for a moment. Verse 1. Hear this, all ye people, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is, what is the expectation of the wicked? Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, being in honor, abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, and yet their posterity approve of their sayings. Like sheep are they laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house increaseth. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he, lived, he blessed him his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. What does it mean, that refrain, man that is in honor? I think the passage is pretty clear. We're looking at a man who has found all of the honor he needs in what people think of him. 
He has looked about and he said, these people will be talking about my land for a long time. I'm going to name my land after myself. And so every time my land is mentioned, my name will be preserved. I'm going to trust in the multitude of my riches. I'm going to uh, trust in the fact that men esteem me. They honor me because I'm rich. I'm going to find my satisfaction there. And this will go on all of my life. And even after I'm gone, that esteem will remain. This is the expectation of the wicked. And what does the son of Korah here tell us in this Psalm, he says, man that is in honor and perisheth is like a beast when he perishes. How much honor does a beast retain? What is an afterlife for him? Obviously, nothing. And so he trusts in his riches, but his riches cannot ransom a soul from the grave, is what the psalmist tells us. He says that he understands that he will see corruption, but he's got a way around it. He's developed a strategy. He's got a hope. He's got an expectation. So he shifts expectation then, instead of communion with the Lord and eternal life, he's figured out a way. He's going to survive, if you will, in his estate and in his name. He all his life sought the honor of men, but when he dies, he will be like the beast. So we see the same in John 5, 44 and Philippians 2, 3. And Christ said as much about the Pharisees, did he not? Turn with me to John chapter 3. And this is one of those passages where we really appreciate the help of our translators in the authorized version. What was the expectation of the Pharisees? Well, we don't have to think too much about it. We know. They believed they had what we've called here before a gravy train with biscuit wheels all the way to heaven. And everything that they needed to get there. God respected them. Why? Because they fasted twice in the week. They paid tithes of all that they received. Mint and anise and cumin. They compassed sea and land to make a proselyte. They worked for the Lord. And so the Lord had to stand up and take notice. They had an expectation. This passage explodes the expectation of the Pharisees. Notice, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Now remember, that's a T-H unto thee. I'm talking to you, Nicodemus, alone. It's just you and me here in this room. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Nicodemus, ye, all you Pharisees, must be born again. What was their expectation? 
gravy train with biscuit wheels to heaven. What was the reality of it? Their expectation would die with them. Because they did not come to the Lord. Jesus will say to them later, Ye search the scriptures, because in them ye think that you have eternal life. And they are that which testifieth of me, but you will not come to me that you might have life. They had an expectation. But it was not a good expectation. It was a phantasmagorical expectation that would be dashed with them. That would come to an end when they did. Well, let's make a couple of uses then and we'll be done. First, beloved, let us not have that same expectation that the, that the world has. Let not that be our expectation. What ought we to anticipate? What is our hope? It is not for worldly accolade. It is not for the affection and, and goodwill of others. And beloved, if we set our hope and our happiness on the behavior of others, we will always be disappointed. This will never satisfy. Never. Instead then, what do we say? What, what does the world seek after? All these things do the Gentiles seek. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6. But there are other things as well. And we don't want to leave it simply what Jesus says there. Because the Bible is clear that there are many things that the wicked seek after. Not just food and shelter and raiment and, and so on. Not just drink. But they seek after acceptance. They seek after being in communion one with another. Right? As it says in Proverbs 1. Come on, let us do this. We'll all have one purse. It'll be great. Let's join ourselves together, right? On the plains of Shinar, let's make ourselves a name. Let's be our own best cheerleading squad, right? What is our expectation, beloved? What is your expectation? Let's bring it home. Let's make this a point of examining ourselves. Is it the beatific or blessed vision and fruition of Christ? Note that rather than this world's noisy salute, to use Samuel Miller's words, the accolades and appreciation of the world, a way to inflame our importance and pride, it is rather that we seek to be like Christ, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I think John is is imbibing here in in a very modest form of speech. When he says, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. In other words, what Jesus said to John and the others in the upper room was, marvel not if the world hate you. Right? Right? Because we are going to be like Christ, because we are the sons of God, now, in verse 2, we are the sons of God. Not then, but now, we are the sons of God. The world knows us not. Yeah. It's a little bit more than it doesn't have much use for us. It's a little stronger than that, we gather from the Gospels. 
John is using a very modest form of speech here. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath what? This hope in him purifieth himself even as he, Jesus, is pure. We are being fitted today for that hope that we have in the future. What is the expectation of the wicked? It's going to come to nothing. It's going to end when he ends. But the hope of the righteous is not so. Everyone that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, Jesus, is pure. Even though we don't know exactly what that will look like, that doesn't mean it has diminished our hope at all. Let's finish up with the larger catechism, those questions that I referenced a moment ago. 82. What is the communion in glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? The communion in glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is in this life, immediately after death, and at last perfected at the resurrection and day of judgment. So now, obviously, those of you that know the larger catechism, you know, we have three questions coming. What is it now? What will it be at death? And what will it be at the resurrection? For our study today, we're interested in what is it now? What is that communion in glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ in this life? The members of the invisible church have communicated to them in this life the first fruits of glory with Christ. Do you hear that? The first fruits of glory are ours, beloved, today. That's the hope of the righteous. In that, they are members of him, their head, and in him are interested. They have a stake in that glory which he is fully possessed of. And as an earnest thereof, enjoy assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, and hope of glory. As, on the contrary, sense of God's revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of their torment, which they shall have after death. There are two humanities, and there are two hopes, and there are two expectations. One of them is a true, a sure hope. And the other is a false and fleeting hope that will be met with ignominy, dishonor, and judgment instead. Beloved, what is the expectation of the wicked? It's going to come to nothing. What is the hope of the righteous? It is to be like Christ and to dwell with him forever. Fix your gaze on your hope and not on the things of this world. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Solomon and his cutting things so very straight by Thy Spirit, by inspiration for us that we might indeed ourselves learn to cut it straight. O Lord, be with us as we meditate upon that antithetical set of verses at the end of Proverbs 10. Help us to separate ourselves from all that is wicked. 
not only in our behavior, not only in our thoughts, not only in our words, but as we have heard especially today, in our hope. And that our hope would be founded upon that sure work of Christ. That we would know that now we are the sons of God. And while we may not know what it shall be yet in the future, we know that we shall be like him. And that hope is a sure hope, a purifying hope. Oh Lord, be with us as we meditate on these things. And as thou hast brought these scriptures to us in this day, that we might remember that separation, that running clear, uh, not overly mingled with the heathen, which we saw of Ephraim changed him, although he knew it not. O Lord, we pray that thou wouldst be with us then, that we should fix our hope upon Christ, that as we heard earlier today, that it would not be some false end, but that we would go to Jesus Christ, seeking to be like him and to commune with him. And Lord, that thou wouldst grant to us those four things that we heard from our larger catechism that are that true statement of the abundant life, that we might have the assurance of thy love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, and that we might also have that hope of glory. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.